From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. So I've talked a lot with you guys about why cancel culture is a great reason to become a Patreon supporter, but there's actually another one. The more subscribers I have, the fewer commercials I need. So you guys have probably noticed that thus far, we're largely commercial free here at the Suzanne Venker Show, and I'd like to keep it that way for the time being. But in order to do that, I need listener support. So if you're an avid listener of the Suzanne Venker Show and you like that it's commercial free, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber. As always, there are four very economical levels from which to choose. And depending on which tier you choose, we offer giveaways and bonus episodes and Q&As with me. Just go to SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast and you'll see the red buttons about a quarter of the way down the page. Again, that's SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast. And now on with the show. Welcome back to the show, Katie. How oh, I love being with you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to see you. This is awesome. So you have a new book coming out. Yay! It's like birthing a baby, right? Oh my gosh, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, and, I, and it was one of those things where I'm like, I could never write a book. Oh, and I just did. <laughs> and you just did. And well, and I should did. say we we just did. I have a co-author and she takes all of this like very weighty, heavy material and then whips it into something pretty. So it's nice to have a friend. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it is. It's way better than doing it solo, I have to say. Um, yeah, so I'm so excited for you. So, so congratulations on that. I know that comes out literally, I think, in two days from when this podcast will air. So good timing. Good timing. Good. That's awesome. And I, and I already said the um, the title in the intro, but I'll say it again. It's Them Before Us, Why We Need a Children's, excuse me, a Global Children's Rights Movement. So we're going to talk all about the rights of kids today. So I'm so excited. Good. My favorite subject. Yep, it is. I know. So what I, what I want to do for people who aren't familiar with you, and some of you who've been with me from the beginning, you might recognize Katie. I had her on last year. Um, so this is her second visit. But I want to read a paragraph or two from one of the blogs on the Them Before Us website that I think gets to the heart of you know who who you are and what you do. You write, we have been studying family structure long enough to know that there are three staples of a child's emotional diet, the love of their father, the love of their mother, and stability. Increasingly, America's children are being denied one or more of these critical emotional nutrients. How do we expect them to thrive in life when we are handing them a famine? What do we honestly think we are creating for our nation and the next generations when not only individual adult decisions, but also national law, ignore children's most basic needs. And then you go on to give the actual stats of the number of children growing up without an intact family. Um, And that one out of two, one out of every two children is growing up without one or both of their biological parents. This also means that they're much more likely to be living in unstable households and so on and so forth. That's kind of the gist of it. So that, um, for people who don't know, is is really what Them Before Us is all about. And I know it started as a website, or at least I think it did. I'll let you tell the story. And it's just now, it's years later that it's actually going to be in book forms, right? Mm-hmm. So tell everybody how it sort of began. Um, the left pushed me over the edge, honestly. 
like the left like radicalized me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. Honestly, I'm just a mom and a pastor's wife, um, and I like to keep my friends and things like that. Uh, but what happened in the gay marriage debate was I heard the other side saying, "Kids don't care if they've got two moms or two dads," which pretty much means kids don't care if they lose their mom or dad. Right. And I had been working with children for a couple decades and, um, you know, doing youth ministry and stuff. And, and when kids are alone, you know, when, when you're in the middle of the youth group lock, lock in and the kid, there's one kid that's left awake and everyone else is all around you in sleeping bags and on the gymnasium floor. And that one kid at 3am wants to talk about what's burdening them. It's always, why doesn't my dad want me? Where did he go? Does he think about me? Or, um, I haven't seen my mother since I was two. Um, I feel like, you know, what's wrong with me that, that she left? Um, like you go right to the heart, you cut to the heart of a child when you take away their mother or father. Um, and so this idea that you can swap out a mom or dad um, and swap in some other adult and the kid's going to be just fine was a complete lie. So that was the lie, you know, that continues to be parroted today that kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved. Um, and so, you know, I got into this because I snapped. But then I ended up digging and and going, wow, you know, we've got um, so many incredible organizations that are fighting for children's right to life. And children deserve all those organizations. We don't have any organization that's fighting for a child's right to their mother and father, which I would argue, and we do in the book, that that is the second primary right that children have. The first is they have a right to not die. The second one is they have a right to be connected to the two people responsible for their existence. And when they're not, they are harmed. Uh, so that's kind of how we, we got into this journey. Um, and yeah, incrementally, but here we are. Yeah, yeah. And it should be a great lesson for anybody who's listening and feels that same angst when they see and hear that what's going on in the world and then feeling like they can't do something. You are actually living proof of what can be done when you put your mind to it and you get passionate enough to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and when you're okay with the cost, you know, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. That, right. Well, and, and that's what's stopping all of us. Right. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you, all you people listening know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the thing that makes you go, that's just unjust. What is going on with that? But you know that if you say something about it, you're going to lose friends. And so at some point you just have to go, okay, what's worth losing friends over? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh it. God, don't get me started. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and I'm so glad you brought that up because you're right. That is really ultimately what stops people, I think, at the end of the day. And it's a hard hurdle. Um, but that's that's exactly how you have to ask it is what what's the price of silence? That's exactly right. right. And who has to pay it? Right. Mm -hmm. Because usually it's the most vulnerable. And so it's time for all of us. You know, we, we talk about that in the book that this is a movement of ordinary adults, honestly, because ordinary adults seem to be the only ones that possess what celebrities and politicians and academia don't have. And that is courage. It is oh. time for ordinary adults to have the courage to do what all of the people in power should be doing, but honestly don't have the guts to do. Um, and if we don't, it's the most vulnerable in this situation, children who are going to pay the price. Right. And I, I also feel that then we're part of the problem. If you don't, if you don't speak up, if you're just quiet, that's another price of silence. Okay. So that's interesting that you mentioned, um, you gave a few tidbits of those little stories of kids, because I want to get to the book in a second, Katie, but one of the most powerful aspects of your 
uh, well, the website anyway, at least in my opinion, are the stories that you have there and you have them in spades. Can you tell people about those and maybe give a particular striking example? Yes, um, we actually have like a preface of a preface um, and it's called Stories of the Silent in the book um, where we talk about um, it's really easy for adults to tell their stories when it comes to marriage and family. Oh, I was in, in such an unhappy marriage, but oh my gosh, I found the love of my life. And now I'm just, you know, vacationing in the Bahamas and everything's great. And I'm so glad I was able to cut that, you know, dead weight, blah, 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 you know, or, oh, I finally come out and I'm living my best life and I'm my true self or, you know, two men who want to create a baby through a surrogate. And they're talking about how much love they have. And they've been rejected by so many adoptive moms, but if only you would contribute to my GoFundMe campaign, we have so much love to get. I mean, adults talk about this kind of thing all the time, right? And the yep. world swoons when mm -hmm. adults tell their story of self-fulfillment when it comes to family. For the kid of the mom who ran off with the guy who really understands her, you know, for the child of the woman who comes out and leaves her family so that she can, you know, pursue a lesbian lifestyle, for the child created through um, surrogacy to share their story, you know, of, of what happened when that GoFundMe campaign, you know, met its goals. What do you think happens? Do you think that the world swoons? No, the world sneers at those children, right? And they depreciate their experience. Well, you should just be grateful that you have two parents that love you. Oh my gosh, they paid so much money to have you. Well, don't you want your mom to be happy? She's living her best life, right? And then what else happens? Do you think that it endears the child to the family when they say, it devastated me when my mom broke up my marriage and I am still dealing with the fallout now because I go over to the house with her new husband and he does not treat me like like a son or daughter that I deserve to be, right? Or what about the child who's created through surrogacy for these two gay guys? Um, what do they say when they say, I fantasized about having a mother and I wondered every day when I walked down the street, um, did I just walk past my mother today? I wonder if she knows that I exist. Does she play the piano like I do? Because nobody else in my family plays the piano. I wonder where I get it from. So I've just given you little snippets, right? Of all the different kinds of real life stories that you're going to read in the book because um, you know it's, it's not like there's anything original here. When kids lose their mother or father, no matter how it happens, death, divorce, abandonment, reproductive technologies, they mourn. And often there's lifelong fallout as a result. And you know, it's not like it's, like you said, it's not new. It's just, I feel like to the best of my knowledge, you're the first person who's taken a microphone and put it up to their mouth. I hope so. I hope so. You know, we often say people kind of conservatives and pro-life, pro-family um, advocates, we've always had the best data. We have always had the best research. We've always had common sense on our side. We've even had the five major religions of the world that have supported this idea that men should commit to the women they're making babies with for life, right? We've, we've had all those things, but what we've never had is the stories because the stories are too expensive to tell. But the stories are what actually changes hearts and minds. I Absolutely. tell you, we go through chapter seven where you're reading about children raised in loving homes by a mother and father, but created through sperm and egg donation. And you read about how it wrecks their identity and how they feel like they were a consumer product that was bought and sold and how they fantasize about who their real mother is. Get through that and then tell me whether or not you think that sperm and egg donation is a-okay, even if it, you know, helps adults fulfill their dreams. You cannot look these kids in the face and then ignore 
the kind of harm that comes to them when we ignore their fundamental rights. I want you to real quickly, before we start on these different myths we're going to debunk, um, tell people really quickly, in case I forget, the difference between adoption what was I asked you this last time? I can't remember exactly yeah. how I asked it. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I totally do. So we spend we we talk about adoption in chapter nine. It gets its own chapter because when you understand adoption properly, um, it is the only exception to the modern family that supports children's rights. Right? Adoption is an institution geared around the needs of children, and we contrast that with reproductive technologies, which are a marketplace that are geared towards the desires of adults. And so one of them is a child-friendly process, and the other one uh, completely disregards the needs and the rights of children. You know, we say in adoption, the adults have to clear a lot of background checks. Um, In reproductive technologies, the only check that has to clear is the one coming from the bank. Right. It's they are two totally different things. So um, that I'm glad we started off on that because most people who um, are on the pro-life, pro-family side, understand the importance of adoption. But it's important because it's child-centric. It's not a way for adults to get kids. And that is what the reproductive technology world is designed for. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that because I know you've had You've had people ask you that a lot, I think. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. 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 And I'm an adopted okay. mom, you know, and so adoption's really close to my heart. I think it's really important we get this right. Okay, so we're going to go through and debunk these myths, which I think are the main points in your book. Number one, I'm just going to read them out and then let you go and do your thing. Kids need only love and safety. Moms and dads are optional. Yeah, um, my quick response to that is um, we have been studying family structure long enough that to know the very place where kids are most likely to be safe and loved is in the home of their own married mother and father. Um, There's just no statistical rebuttal to that, that um, biology matters in the parent-child relationship. Um, Biological parents tend to be the safest adults in a child's life, the most connected to, the most invested in, the most attached to their children. Um, We spent all of chapter two talking about um, the studies that illustrate how differently non-biologically related parents react to and interact with children in the home, Um, thankfully. And, and, you know, I say this knowing that everybody out there has in mind some step-parent that is doing hero's work, right? Because they are filling in for some deadbeat negligent biological parent. And we can recognize those anomalies, but they are, right? The rule is biological parents are going to be the most connected to, protective of, invested in their own children. Um, And so in terms of love and safety, you know, your, your listeners right now can just pause, Google the words mother's boyfriend, and then come back to the podcast and listen to the rest of this. Um, Because what they're going to find is the devastating gruesome stories of illustrating the fact that um, an unrelated cohabiting man is the most dangerous person in a child's life. And so this idea that, um, you know, kids don't need moms and dad, they just need to be safe and loved. I'm like, okay, if you want them safe and loved, you better give them their own mom and dad and they better be married. Bingo. Absolutely. And I think, I feel like you must get a lot of flack for people saying, so I can hear them now going, well, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent that way. You have to make allowances for quote unquote alternative families. And I don't think your point is to say that we can have a hundred percent of people doing this, but just to simply say, this is not that. 
So don't make that comparable to this. Yeah. Yes. Right. So the rule is that biological parents are the safest, right? The exception is that a non-biological parent rises to that level of connection with the child. And that is the very reason why adoption agencies force people like me to go through months of screening, background checks, references, home studies, physical exams. I mean, all of that kind of stuff because social workers aren't fools. They would lose their license if they just handed a kid over to me because why? Because so, non-biologically related adults are statistically not as safe to children. I mean, if we have that system in place specifically to avoid disasters in the adoption world, why does that not translate to the reproductive technologies? Why doesn't it? I mean, I know money-wise, I get that. <laughs> but I'm like, well, yes. go ahead. The, the inconsistency is incredible. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact that you can create a child on a whim without going through what you went through as an adoptive mom. I, I don't, is there no pushback to that? There's Anywhere? no pushback. No, nope, there's no pushback. No, um, because there is no regulation. There's no oversight. There's not even any serious tracking of who these children are, where they're going, who's taking them home. Um, these kids can, you know, we talk about this in detail in the surrogacy chapter, um, which I know we're kind of skipping ahead, but um, surrogacy is really just on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide. I mean, these kids are crossing borders, never to be seen from or heard from or followed up with again. You know, as an adoptive parent, we had several post-placement evaluations where the social worker came and checked on the well-being of the child. Um, reproductive technologies are the absolute inverse of adoption best practice that has been developed over decades. It's so scary. And it's just the beginning, Katie. I mean, this is it new, is. really. Yeah. This is new. Oh, and there's more. I mean, like, we're we're at such a scary place now, and it's not stopping. No, no. Okay, so this kind of, so number two kind of goes somewhat, I mean, hand in hand with number one, but love makes a family. Biology is irrelevant. And of course, we see this in Hollywood all the time. You know, all we need is love. Mm -hmm. Just as long as people love each other. And then, of course, I'm immediately thinking of marriage because I attribute it to that because I'm always saying love is definitely not enough to be married. So if it's not enough to get you through 45 years of marriage or whatever, it's not enough to raise a child. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably the most prevalent myth. Love makes a family um, and love is important to a family, um, but love does not make a family. And what you, people usually say when they say love makes a family is they mean I, the adult, can do anything I want. As long as I'm happy. As I love them. Yes, right. <laughs> right. As long as I'm happy, I'm with the person that I want to be with. Yep. Everybody else should revolve around me and get in line so that I can be happy. That's really what love makes a family means. Because if you're talking about the well-being of the child, we know three things. That biology matters, that gender matters, and that marriage matters. <laughs> you know, I did a What Would You Say uh, video with the Colson Center on exactly that. Um, and so we go through, you know, we've got a chapter on biology matters that you and I kind of talked about a bit. We have a chapter on gender matters in parenting. And then we've got a whole chapter on why marriage matters and is a social justice is issue for children. Um, so love, love is important. But if you're talking about what makes a family the best place for a child, um, Biology, gender, and marriage matter an awful lot. You know, the whole love idea of love being enough to get married and love being enough to raise kids and have a family is so um, immature. That's, that's really the only word I can think of. It's infantile. <laughs> What's that? What's flimsy. That? It's so flimsy. Flimsy, yeah. It's, it's kind of like what you would think you'd feel at 18, you know, when you... 
you know, you think, you know, so much and everything feels, you go with the feeling, right. Mm -hmm. With no concept of what marriage means of what's involved with raising kids. And it's always fascinating to me how you just rewind a few centuries, not a few centuries, excuse me, a few decades. Mm -hmm. And you, um, you immediately see in America that was so vastly different in terms of its understanding that that it was the complete reverse of this. People understood that that was huge and heavy and um, obligatory and just necessary. It was just a completely different viewpoint, whether you're talking about marriage or raising kids, just a few decades. And we've flipped the script and made it all about how we feel and what looks good. Yeah, the culture has done a lot of that, obviously, through like the sexual revolution and through this kind of me centric world that we are living in. But the courts are doing it, too. Um, And we talk about that a little in chapter one, where we lay out the case for children's rights. um, And we quote Helen Alvarez, who's an advisor for them before us. And she talks about how the courts have moved away from this idea of a parent-child bond connection and fundamental right towards a preference towards what she calls adult sexual expressionism, right? That the cults are just swinging towards orienting, even the courts are orienting everything around kind of the romantic and sexual inclinations of the adults. So there are um, there are fronts all around us that need to be um, waged. You know, this battle is raging all over. Okay, this other one, these kind of go, again, they still go hand in hand. Marriage is about adults. It has nothing to do with kids. Which I right. So we heard a lot of that in the gay marriage debate, right? Well, kids, like, we're not even going to have kids. A lot of people don't have kids. Infertile people don't have kids. You can be married and, and you know, be infertile. Does that mean you don't have a marriage? Bam. Ooh, roast. We won. No. Right. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, marriage is the only institution that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. Marriage has been the most child friendly institution the world has ever known for that very reason. Um, But now we have stripped marriage of that critical function, right? connecting mothers and fathers to each other so that their children can be connected to both, right? That is really what the public purpose of marriage is. As Ryan Anderson famously says, the government doesn't care about your love life, right? They care that you are making babies. And we say those babies have rights. And the best way for, and again, right, this isn't, I'm not just talking about our government. This is what nearly every religion and culture throughout history has recognized that things don't go very well if men don't commit to the women they're making babies with ahead of time and then stay with them for life. That's really what marriage has mm-hmm. just generally been understood to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so marriage is critical for kids. Um, it is the only traditional marriage is the only relationship where they're going to get those three staples that you mentioned at the beginning, mother's love, father's love and stability have those met. There is no other um, configuration where they're going to get that. And that's why no matter what the law says, um, doesn't matter what other relationships they call a marriage, there is only one relationship that does this for a child, and it's the marriage of their mother and father. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. 
I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneBanker.com. Okay, and this next one's one of my, oh my gosh, it gets me going. Children are resilient and will get over divorce. Yeah. Talk about the biggest lie ever told. Holy crap. Holy crap. Uh, I know. Um, And you know, I got into this whole public policy battle because of the push for same-sex parenting. And that led me into researching reproductive technologies and connecting with so many children who are donor conceived. But this chapter of of the book got me the most. Um, This chapter on divorce, I didn't even know. I didn't know that children of divorce, well, to this extent, were more susceptible to cancer and heart disease. I mean, their physical health is so damaged by this primary loss that they experience. Obviously, incredible emotional fallout. Um, The complications of step families, um, the statistics that show that um, if you are a child of divorce, you're actually better off if neither of your parents ever get married. You are more likely to um, do better in school, to be more successful in your own relationships, to be able to maintain your own marriage. Like divorce is terrible. Remarriage, though. Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. No, I know exactly what you're saying. so hard on kids. Yeah. You could almost argue, you could almost argue, okay, if it's really that bad, split up, just stay focused on your kids. Don't get involved with anybody else and take them to 18. You know what I mean? And that would be, I, I would take that today over what you're talking about, because you're right. It's when the remarriage and the new family comes in that the disaster occurs. And I would say you people can argue, you can argue that if it's an, a, you should argue that if it's abusive or seriously high conflict, then yes, children experience some relief from divorce. Um, but as you are very well aware, that is not the majority of cases. That's not the majority. Right. Um, and, and, the thing about remarriage that is so concerning to me, and we see it all around in our neighborhoods and in our, with our family members and just everybody we know, um, it, to me, what's most frustrating about it is that it's been so normalized that I think something happens psychologically to people when something becomes so normalized because of that whole desire that humans have to be um, um to do to do what everyone else is doing kind of thing and, and feel good about what they're doing that the depth of what actually goes on never even gets touched mm-hmm. because you're not even allowed to even say the simplest negative comment about the reality of divorce let alone get into the really deep stuff does that make sense I don't know if I said yes. that right oh no 100% and so I actually think that this is a problem in all of the different um 
chapters that we address. So, right. So we're talking about divorce, the chapter after this is same sex parenting, the chapter after that's donor conception, then surrogacy, then adoption. And what happens when these are so normalized um, is the kids still experience the fallout, right? They still experience the strange um, physical symptoms, you know, of like having bizarre stomach aches and, and bedwetting that people are like, what's wrong with your kid? Well, I don't know. Like they just started happening. I don't know, you know, or, um, these children, they, they deal with the mother hunger or the father hunger, but everybody in their world is saying, gosh, you're so lucky to have two moms. You must be so happy. Right. And so what it does, it's actually like this, this normalization of mother and father loss is like gaslighting kids. Yeah. I was just gaslighting. Yes. Yep. Because, because they, they're suffering, right. They're feeling like there must be something wrong with me. And we actually say that um, in chapter we said that about gay marriage, right? When you legalize gay marriage, you've got, and supposedly in the name of helping kids with gay parents, um, what you're telling them is there's no, there's no legal markers. And now there's no cultural markers that even say that they should have a mom or dad. So when they say, oh my gosh, I wish I had a dad, um, they look around and we've got the, we've got dozens of quotes testifying this in the book. They go, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with me for feeling sad, feeling sick, feeling hurt, feeling wounded, feeling like I'm not enough, feeling incomplete, feeling like something's wrong, feeling angry. I mean, I'm wrong for feeling this way when really what they want is what every kid in the history of the world has ever wanted, which is to be known and loved by both their mom and dad. And if it had happened 40 years ago, like my husband is a product of divorce, everybody rallies around that kid. Before it was normalized, people understood and grasped the scope of the weight of this and then rallied around them. Now it's like, eh, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and not so- only that, and we say this is a common theme throughout the book too, not just, oh, you're fine, but you need to support your yeah. parent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Step another right. step, another level. Right. 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 You are there, you exist to support them where it's, it should be the exact opposite, right? Adults should be the ones that are sacrificing and accommodating. But whenever you have children who lose a parent because adult desire was prioritized above their right, you automatically place the burden of acting like an adult on the child. The child has to sacrifice. The child has to be understanding. The child has to accommodate. It is a role reversal in all of these family structures. And the fallout. I mean, we're so clueless. We're so clueless. I mean, the fallout of what this kid, what that, I mean, that's literally changing who he or she becomes. And it will be carried with him for life in his own relationships with going in his adult uh, life. It's just... It's mind numbing. Actually, I think sometimes when you sit down and think about it, it's so far reaching that it's painful. You can't even go there because you, it's so surreal and beyond the scope of what you feel like you can do. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and that's true for the individual child. Um, you can you can read read their stories and you really just go, we're starving them. We are starving them of something that they need. But then you look at that happening on such a widespread scale in this mm-hmm. country and you go, oh, yeah. Like, oh, you can oh, say shit on this. You can say shit. Oh, I can. Good. We are in such big trouble as a nation because we're raising generations of starved children. Which is why you labeled this, you titled this article that I read out of at the beginning, half of U.S. children are emotionally starving, which I thought was a great title. Mm-hmm. Okay. This one's personal for you. Five studies show no difference in outcomes for kids with same sex parents. 
tell everybody why this is personal. <laughs> well, um, I don't have two moms, um, but I do have a mom that I love and I'm really close to who has a partner and they've been together for um, uh, more than 30 years. I don't consider her partner my mother, but I consider her partner my friend. Um, and thankfully, after my parents divorced, I stayed connected to both my mom and dad. Um, and they did their best. They did a really good job in terms of divorce, of staying civil with one another and um, staying connected to me. So I am so grateful that um, they were able to work that out. The kids who grow up with no knowledge of their father, completely disconnected from either their mom or dad because they're raised in the same sex household, um, they struggle. But we spend the first half of that chapter debunking this myth that studies show that kids fare no different because that was pushed over and over leading up to the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage. They needed this research um, to validate, you know, so on the one hand, they're like, well, marriage has nothing to do with kids. Also, kids with same sex parents fare no different. So you should legalize gay marriage, right? I mean, they wanted it both ways. Um, and so we spent a lot of time looking at the methodological problems with those no difference studies. And then we bring in a couple gigantic studies that use pretty good methodology. And what you find is, oh, there's actually a huge difference um, when it comes to kids raised by same-sex parents, um, especially in terms of emotional well-being. Uh, so, and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that if there's a, there's a huge consensus among sociologists that biological parents um, are the safest, most connected to, most protective of kids, that gender matters in parenting, mothers and fathers offer distinct and complementary benefits to children, that losing a parent through death, divorce, abandonment, um, reproductive technologies, uh, and then even if they're subsequently adopted, that all those kids suffer diminished outcomes. How is it then? Does it logically make sense that when you are studying gay parenting, suddenly none of those things matter anymore? Because the kid's always going to be without a biological parent. They're always going to be missing the maternal or paternal love they crave. And they always are going to have um, the trauma of that parental loss. So um, it's it was a very nicely done political push um, to get these no different studies into the limelight quickly, but um, it does not hold up under scrutiny. Okay, sperm and egg donor kids are fortunate because they are so wanted. Oh my gosh, that's like the opposite argument for abortion. You don't want to bring a baby in who's not wanted, so that's why it's better to have an abortion, right? I just realized that when I was reading that. Yes, in chapter one, actually, we we draw some parallels between the abortion industry, um, you know, what we call the baby taking industry and the fertility world, the baby making industry. Um, there are two sides of the same coin. Both of them consider children um, really to be objects um, whose rights are determined by whether or not they're wanted. Right. So the abortion world says a child is unwanted. Therefore, I can violate their right to life and force them out of existence. Reproductive technologies says, oh, a child is very wanted, so I can violate their right to a mother and father and force them into existence, right? In both of those situations, it's the adult desire that determines whether or not the children's rights are protected. Um, so, you know, the, we have oh, probably close to 30 stories in this chapter, um, and we address this feeling of commodification, right? They were so wanted, they paid so much money. They were, I was so wanted, they chose me out of a catalog, you know, which they do choose children out of catalogs these days, right? It is shopping, it is purchasing, it is buying and selling. Um, and 
the reality is um, the few studies that we do have, the few surveys that we do have measuring outcomes for children created through these technologies show um, that they have more household instability than their peers raised by biological parents, um, that they have increased emotional struggles, substance abuse issues. Um, they have a harder time trusting their family members. What's even fascinating is um, adopted children are generally raised by neither biological parent. Donor conceived children are generally raised by one biological parent, yeah. but the adoptees do better than the kids conceived through sperm and egg donation. And we suggest in the book that that's because the adoptive parents are seeking to mend the wound, but the children created through reproductive technologies are being raised by the parents who created the wound. The wound. And that that levels a pretty serious psychological burden on the child. <sighs> okay. Surrogacy is a great way to help wannabe parents have a baby. Surrogacy is a, a I'm going to let you. So I think, I think a lot of people listening right now will be like, what on earth is wrong with surrogacy? I can hear it now. So you're the only one who can answer that. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially for us people who are pro-life and pro-family and we love babies, right? Um, and especially because the only thing that um, the media lets us see are these airbrushed photos of celebrities who have surrogate-born children who are beautiful and wonderful, and they really, really are. But the reality is that when you're making children in laboratories, which is what surrogacy starts with, only 7% of those lab-created children will be born alive, okay? This is a, a child commodifying process where most of these lab-created babies are going to either live forever in a freezer, they won't survive the transfer, they're going to be um, sex-selected and rejected, um, they're going to be deemed non-viable and rejected, they will be selectively reduced, which means aborted in the womb if they're the wrong sex or there's too many of them or um, too many took took, you know, took when they did the implantation. Um, this is not a child-friendly process. Um, there's a famous case, Lance Bass um, is now on his 10th surrogacy attempt. Um, and, you know, anywhere from one to four children in each of those transfers, and none of them have taken hold. I mean, they're, you, this is a process where you just burn through unborn children until you get the one you want. So um, we go through the chapter and we talk about how what you pointed out, there are no background checks for people that are creating children through reproductive technologies. And so you have this these dystopian scenarios where men create children uh, just for the purpose of exploiting them in horrifying ways. Um, you've got the situation of um, the baby factory dad, a millionaire in Japan that decided he wanted 100 children. He was single, didn't have a wife, didn't want a wife purchased the eggs of a white woman, hired out farms of women in Thailand, um, and then just raised crops of children. So we are, for the first time in the world, I mean, we've dealt with father loss in this, in humanity for a long time, sometimes on massive scales, like after war. We have never, never been to the place where we are inflicting mother loss on children. And um, now we get all the dystopic kind of realities that go along with completely ignoring and defying what is the most intimate biological connection we have with any person in our world. And that's our mother. It's all so awful, Katie. It's all so awful. I don't know how you do this every day and stay as um, 
upbeat as you do and are. It's just really heavy stuff. Yeah. And justice pisses me off. I know. (laughs) I mean, that's the only explanation is sometimes I think I kind of want to go do something else. I damn it. No. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, artificial wombs are on the horizon and the most expensive part of creating a baby in reproductive technologies um, is finding a woman who will rent her body for nine and a half months. Um, You know, we already have entire countries that will open their doors to the surrogate uh, clinics and they will create factories of women for breeding um, floors of them, right? Cots lined up for pregnant women um, who are renting their bodies, usually to white, wealthy Westerners. And then after a couple of years, all of those countries close their doors, right? Nepal, Cambodia, Thailand, because what they realize is, oh, wow, this is not India. This isn't just a way for poor women to make money. We're purchasing women and selling children. And so many of these markets that have cheap wombs, interestingly, they are brown wombs, uh, they have realized we can't do this. And so if there is a way to cut out women altogether from the baby making process, boy, would we save a lot of money. So we already have artificial wombs kind of in the making now. So this intense fight that children should not be bought and sold, that children have a right to their mother and father, we got to get serious about this right now. Because what's coming down the pipe is uh, is going to be even more horrifying than what we're dealing with today. Oh my gosh, Katie! Thank you so much for coming on and enlightening everybody about all this stuff. <laughs> They're going to be like, I can hear them now, just overwhelmed and having to you know, look through it again because it's so heavy and deep. And there's just not a lot of people who are who have their finger on the pulse of this issue. I mean, there isn't anybody except for you, in my opinion, and the people that you work with. Well, the good news is uh, your listeners are probably, um, they've been building up their muscles for this because you're serious. You always talk the straight truth. I listen to your podcast. I love them. Um, and you're really serious about just giving them the straight truth. You know what I mean? You're not sugarcoating Absolutely. it. And so nope. I think that the, your audience is going to be able to handle a lot of this in ways that a lot of people, they, they're just a little too squeamish or too sensitive, but you have just like beaten your people into like a muscly mass of like, just <laughs> bring so. it on, bring it on. We can take it. That's right. That's right. And so the, 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 those who are kind of new and didn't hear you last time, it's Katie Faust, F-A-U-S-T and tell people where they can find you, Katie. Yeah. So I'm at thembeforeus.com. Um, the book is on Amazon and uh, the book is on all the places you get books, right? That's what authors say. And all the places right. the books are yeah. sold. Um, but Amazon is the go-to spot. Um, Professor Robert George wrote the foreword for it, um, which, you know, my co-author and I thought we could help him out a little bit (laughs) with his career. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, he's a very amazing guy, intellect. He's from Prince. He's at Princeton currently. Yeah. I think he's called like the most influential Christian in America or something. Yeah. Um, But even his preface is worth the price of the book. (laughs) That's unusual. That's very unusual. That's good. I know it was, um, we hope that his career takes off now. That's all we do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This has been great. Really appreciate it, Katie. Thanks for um, having me. Oh so, yeah. Good luck with everything. Two days, I think 23rd is a Tuesday, right? So this comes out on Sunday. So yeah, two days from now, there you go. Everybody go to Amazon, then before us, start a little crusade of your own. You got to be a little mini Katie, yes. you know, find your cause, find your yeah. cause, people. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Katie. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.
Today's email of the day is from, I don't know if it's Nell or Nelly. It's N-E-L-E. So I don't want to butcher that. But she writes, Dear Suzanne, you talk a lot about the young women who just focus on career and then realize too late that they want a family. There is also another case, millennials like me who had their instincts in the right place, but were not supported and discouraged. I mean, we're not supported and encouraged and didn't have the strong upbringing community to point them in the right direction. I personally feel teeter-tottering between regret, shame, and blame disappointment. Neither places lead us close to where we want to be. How do we move forward? I have enough common sense to know there's no easy answer. Maybe it's as simple as that some people just won't ever know the joys that they would have found in different circumstances. But I'm stubborn. I'm a fighter. I'm not giving up. It would be so good to hear from other 30-somethings to hear how they specifically turn their lives around. Okay, I loved this email because it gets to the heart of the book that is being re-released this year, later this year. Um, It is an older book of mine from 10 years ago with a whole new cover, whole new title, whole new intro, updated content, and it gets directly to the heart of this question. It is essentially telling women, guess what? You need a major detox from all of the lies that you've been fed about men, about marriage, sex, love, work, family, the whole nine yards. So in order to move forward, she's absolutely right. It is millennials who are many millennials. I shouldn't say all of them. A lot of them just go along to, you know, just, just go along without thinking, but the ones who are stuck, that's who this book is for. It's essentially knowing that you're marriage minded and that you want that to be the focus of your life. You don't want to map out your life the way you're told to do it and the way everybody around you seems to be doing it, which is career, 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 and worrying about the whole, all that other stuff later. So this book is a clear, distinct path on how you're going to start thinking differently, planning differently, and then of course, offering you the support that you need to do that. So um, the the short answer to Nell's question is, um, is I have a book for you and I can't really state it right here in this answer. So I will send it to you personally when it is ready. But um, in the meantime, I hear you and I know you're there. And I personally think you got very screwed, your generation, and it pains me, which is why I wrote this book to begin with and can't wait for it to come out and to share it with the world. So thank you, Nellie, for your question. Hope that helps. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook by typing in the Facebook search bar, The Suzanne Venker Show. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Venker Show.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.